Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It is great to see you this morning. Uh, if it's your first time, uh, welcome. We're so thankful uh, that you are here. Uh, if it's time uh, 248, uh, then we're really uh, thankful that you're here as well. Uh, if you're watching online, uh, thanks for joining us uh, online. If you got a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to actually finish our series through the book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, and some of you maybe are like, dang, it's over. And some of you are like, praise the Lord. You know, there's a lot of Ephesians uh, over the past several months, uh, but I'm excited to finish this up. So we'll pick up just a few moments, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, feel, feel free to use your print Bible, use it on your phone, tablet, whatever you have here. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles in the back of the room. Um, you can grab one of those. I wish that I could describe to you accurately who my friend Dave Gibbs is. Massive is one of the words that I would use to describe him. Uh, he is just a huge, manly man. So years ago when I was a student pastor, uh, Dave Gibbs, teacher at a local high school, wrestling coach, Benches 400 and something pounds, uh, just intimidating figure. Uh, the only thing I could describe standing next to Dave Gibbs like, it would be like giving Greg Lauderdale a hug. I've never felt smaller in my life than giving Greg Lauderdale a hug. So Dave Gibbs carries that sort of uh, uh, presence with him. So when I was a student pastor, we thought it'd be a good idea for a series we were doing with the students to film a video of Dave Gibbs just throwing me around, right? I mean, just slamming me into the ground, like that sort of thing. We thought it would be funny. Uh, and so this, this might come as a shock to you, uh, but I haven't always had this amazing athletic physique. Um, and so uh, that was supposed to be a joke. Some of you guys maybe took that seriously. I don't know. Uh, and so we're going to film the video. I wrestled a little bit in high school, so I thought, oh man, you know, like, I'm going to give this guy a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not just going to like flop for the camera. And so we start to wrestle and I'm like, you know, kind of pushing back against them. Um, and when I say this was maybe one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, I mean, this is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I have never felt as weak or as powerless in a moment ever because I thought I was actually doing something. And that dude just picked me up slammed me on the ground, looked at the guy filming and said, was that good enough? <clears throat> and the guy filming said, we probably need to do it a couple of more times. Not because he didn't get the shot, but because he thought it was so funny. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you just felt overmatched. Maybe your frailty as a human hit you at a moment. And for many of us, probably wasn't something physical, but maybe just a time where you saw clearly, I am weak and powerless, and I need some help. If you haven't felt that way, don't worry. Paul's going to explain in a few moments that that is exactly your predicament and exactly my predicament. But the good news is he's going to give us a way to be strong, even when our weakness is apparent. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Here's what he writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also he says for me, that words may be given to me in the opening and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Of all the things that we've talked about through the book of Ephesians, here is what Paul wants his readers and wants us to know before he concludes his letter. His final instruction, he says, is just simply be strong. Do you notice the repeated phrase over and over again in this passage? Stand. Stand firm. Stand. Be strong. Why does he conclude with this instruction? Because he knows everything we've talked about over the course of the book of Ephesians is hard. He knows these men and women who were reading this letter for the first time, and you and me today would need strength to be able to live out our new identity as those who belong to Jesus. Those who are living in a new community, this community of faith that he's talked about in Ephesians. That we need strength to live out these new standards that he started to give us in chapter four and went all the way into chapter six. That it is going to take very real strength. It's not an easy life to live. Living a life that follows Jesus and living a life more so that is being transformed to be like Jesus requires real strength. You've probably already found this to be true in your life. If you think back over the past several months at everything that we've learned in the book of Ephesians, it's easy to feel outmatched and overwhelmed. We need strength to constantly remind ourselves of the chapter one real spiritual blessings that we already have in Christ. We need strength in moments where our sin has overwhelmed us to remember that God is rich in mercy and he longs to pour his mercy out on us. We need real strength to continue to show up for this community of faith, the church that God has provided for his people, especially when the church is so apt to let us down. We need real strength for that. We need real strength to lead, leave, live by these new standards in the church and in our homes, in our workplace, 
in our relationships, you and I need strength. The weakness that we struggle with isn't really in the weight room. It's not on the athletic field, but most often it is a weakness of character. That we face very real temptation to be marked by jealousy or bitterness, lust or greed. Very real temptation to lie, to get out of certain consequences, to be consumed with our anger, to be given over to malice. A very real temptation to use our words to harm others. A very real temptation to allow our hearts to become hard. And we face that every single day. Plus, as if this isn't bad enough news, what he says next is absolutely terrifying. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. He says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why is this terrifying? Did you hear what he just said? A real enemy is at work in our world and it's not your boss. A real enemy is at work in this world and it is not your neighbor who refuses to cut his grass. A real enemy is at work in this world, and it is not. It is not your spouse who you are having a spat with right now. It is way more terrifying than that. It's a spiritual enemy he calls the devil. We're going to talk more about who the devil is. And then he points out that there are other spiritual forces at work. The devil's got a crew. Now, I don't know. In fact, No one really knows what the cosmic powers and authorities and rulers, everybody's got a different opinion. But here's what we can know with certainty, that the Bible talks about unashamedly, that we talk about embarrassingly in our current modern world, is there is a very real spiritual world. And it has a very real bearing and influence on our life in the here and now. When it comes to this discussion, we quickly fall into two camps. The first one is YouTube famous, and that is there is a devil behind every bush. Everything that goes wrong in your life, the devil made you do it. This is a group of people who are so afraid of the work of the devil that they quickly end up creating scenarios that would be outlandish even for a Stephen King novel. This is the woman explaining to you on YouTube how Monster Energy Drinks has 666 hidden in the artwork of the can. And if you drink it, you're probably going to rot in hell. That's a little weird, all right? That's a little much. But then there's the more modern, sophisticated mind on the other side that would say this is a made-up fantasy. It's not real. In fact, it's frankly quite embarrassing, Brandon, for you to talk about these sorts of things in public. Now listen, like most of you, uh, I'm not interested in YouTube lady, all right? 
Uh, I don't need to hear another explanation of how I, uh, when I got the COVID vaccine, now have the mark of the beast encoded in my DNA. But the Bible talks about these spiritual forces, including the devil, as a reality. The devil at the heart of who he is, the Bible teaches, is a deceiver. And there is a real spiritual world and also a real spiritual danger. And the clearest explanation of this danger is not exorcisms or vampires or YouTube videos or the U.S. government tricking us or Russia's the Antichrist or any of that stuff. The clearest picture that we have is Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? God has created a world that lives perfectly in harmony and peace with him and perfectly in harmony and peace with each other. And this figure called the Satan or the serpent in that text, same figure as the devil, shows up and does two things. Two very simple things, but two very effective things. He asks a question. Did God really say? Leveraging doubt on the people in the garden, Adam and Eve. And then he does a second thing. He says very uh, slyly, are you sure? If you eat of the fruit, surely you won't die. You remember the story? What's he doing? It's raising a second question, is God good? And if you want to know the very heart or the very definition of how these spiritual forces is at, are at work in our world and in our lives, it is still constantly around those two questions. Leveraging doubt, did God really say this? And leveraging doubt on God's goodness, is he really good or is he withholding a good thing from you? Now, we could talk and write books and do a whole sermon series on spiritual warfare and go super deep into it. And there would be some weird stuff and there would be some crazy stuff. But here's what I'm telling you today. What you experience every day, every day of your life are these two things. Actively at work in subtle ways to get you to doubt who God is, what he said, and his intentions towards you. And we experience it constantly. Here's how it works. I love this quote. You've heard this from me before. Robert Murray McShane says this, the seed of every heart, I mean, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. The seed of every sin known to man is in your heart and my heart too. And the work of the devil, the work of these spiritual forces is to put you in an environment so that those seeds bear fruit. Does that make sense? to trick us, deceive us in subtle ways so that that bears fruit in our hearts. Who's responsible for our actions? We are. We are. There's forces at work to get us to allow those things to grow bigger, stronger in our hearts. Now, while this terrifying verses 10 and 11 do give us some sort of good news, verse 10, he says, uh, not only to be strong, but we can be strong in what? In the strength of his might. 
which means that there is an option for us not to just use our own strength in this sort of environment, but that God is making the strength of his might available to us. That's good news. And then secondly, he says, this strength happens in a certain way with an instruction, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Or in other words, God's given you what you need. You have access to it, so put it on and use it. You picture the scene, right? Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians church thinking, how do I describe this to them? How do I paint this a picture? How do I paint a picture of this? He looks across his cell as he's in prison to the centurion that's guarding him, and he goes, oh, I got it. Here's my metaphor. Here's how I'm going to explain the sort of strength that they need, the sort of preparation that they need. I'm about to use this guy's armor. And so he unpacks then what this armor of God is and what it's for. First, this is important. It is a metaphor, all right? So nobody go get some real armor this afternoon, all right? You don't need it. This real armor is not going to help you. That's not what this is about. Second, like with all metaphors in the scripture, they have an end, right? They're used to make a single point. Because you can go crazy, especially on the internet, chasing down all sorts of wild implications for what this means. So here's what we're going to do together. I'm just going to quickly explain it in the most straightforward way possible. Does that make sense? Great. If you got pens and paper, write this down. Number one, belt of truth. What's the metaphor? The metaphor here is he's looking at the centurion's belt around his waist, knowing that before a battle, what a centurion would do was hike up their tunic a little bit, get that thing real tight, and it would hold everything together. And he says, what we have is a belt like that, but he says, our belt is the truth. That the truth for us prepares us and holds everything together. That what we need to remember in times of temptation and weakness is the truth. As followers of Jesus, we believe, unlike many people in our cultural context, in objective truth. Here's the difference between us and many people. We humbly don't believe that we can know all of the truth, but what we do believe is that God has revealed enough of the truth in order for us to navigate this life properly. So we believe that there's truth out there. And that is objective regardless of what we think about it. And that we can know it for certain when God has revealed it. God reveals his truth in his creation and his word and ultimately in his son. So we hold on. We're put together by the truth. And by the fact that God is the source of all truth, that he's the revealer of truth. We believe in our very hearts that God is good and that God wants to do good by us. So when we cinch up our belts, we are cinching up or holding ourselves together with the truth. This is quite possibly, we're going to spend just a little more time on this one today, because quite possibly it is the most countercultural thing that you will hear me say. More shocking than there's a devil in a spiritual world is this idea that there is truth and that it can be known. This is important for us on a daily basis with what we face because we are daily tempted with a distorted version of reality. We are daily tempted to trust other sources of truth. 
to believe that I'm one purchase away or one relationship away or one sexual experience away from happiness. We're tempted to pursue false promises based on false realities, to chase after fake intimacy with fake sex, with fake digital images, to have fake joy expressed in fake pictures with forced camera angles, to take the weight off of our fake single chins, to create the false impression with all of our friends that our lives are amazing on Instagram. A couple weeks ago, um, my friend uh, Matt uh, and his wife and two kids took a trip out west. And he was posting pictures of their trip on Facebook and Instagram. And you know what I found myself doing? You know what happened to me? All of a sudden, jealousy started to rise up in my heart. And I started to think, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to take a trip like that? Now, some of you who have known the Nichols family for two years will know that this is crazy, a crazy thought. Why? Because we took that exact trip two years ago. And my friend Matt called and asked me where they should go on their trip. But isn't that how subtle this thing is? I was jealous of someone else for the thing that they did, copying the thing that I did. That's totally insane. But we are tempted by that all the time, and not a bit of it is rooted in reality. It's a little book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. He's got a great paragraph at the end I want to read to you. Here's what he says. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. What did he just say? In ancient days, really smart men were at work trying to figure out how they could set their character or become the sort of people that could navigate the real world. And the solution, he said, had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is this, he says, how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution, he says, is a technique. Both in the practice of the technique are ready to do things hitherto disregarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. Now, don't miss what he just said based on his immediate application. What he just said is we're so uncomfortable with reality or the truth that we use back in the day magic to conform it to our will, but now we're so much more sophisticated, we do the same thing with technology. And we think we can be omnipotent. And so we treat our phones like we're gods. As if we could prevent the terrible thing from happening to our kids just because we know about it. Not in control. We're not. Or we create our own identities using surgery. What are we doing? We're using technology like it's magic to create our own different realities. And C.S. Lewis is just pointing out, perhaps we would be better people if we did more work to conform our souls to the truth and less work trying to get the truth to conform to our wishes. 
So then our prayer is just simply this, Father, today may I see your world truthfully. Today, Father, could I interact with your world based on reality? Could I not be tricked? Could I not buy into the distorted version of reality? Could I see your world truthfully? Now we got to go quick. Number two. Breastplace of righteousness. What's the metaphor here? Soldier would put on armor to cover what? Most vital organs. It's important. It's well-being needs to be protected. Heart, lungs, kidneys. Here's what he's saying is that we likewise are protected by righteousness. Now, your first thought would probably be that it's good living, that sort of righteousness that protects us from harm. But that would be to ignore the entire book of Ephesians. What has he told us all the way through Ephesians? You're righteous because you've been united with Christ, which is why over and over again, he's used this phrase, in him, in him, in him, in him, in him. So what's he saying here? You and I will be tempted at the very heart of who we are to doubt our position before God. And the most vital thing in your life and in my life is that we would know that we stand righteous before God, not because of what we've done, but because of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us in our place. And we get off track when we believe what? Self-righteousness? We get puffed up with pride? We think that God owes us because of what we did and how we performed, and that creates a sickness inside of us? And it's very subtle, right? Very subtle. That temptation is just taking a little bit of pride, a little bit of acclaim for what you've done. Paul's like, no, man, you need to strap on this breastplate of righteousness to kill your pride, to remind you that your standing before God is based on Christ and Christ alone. There's another subtle temptation here that we would be given over into despair, that we would think not pridefully about our actions, but that our actions would drag us into the a pit of shame and guilt. And we would in desperation say, there is nothing I can do to make God happy. And that likewise is a poison into our souls that will cause us to not be able to look each other in the eye, to not walk in boldness in the way that God has called us to walk. And he's saying, what you need is a breastplate of righteousness. And here's the good news, friends. It's not your righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. So put it on. Don't be given over into despair. I love there's a quote attributed to Martin Luther. I don't know if it actually originated with him or not. Such a wonderful, wonderful defense against this sort of temptation for the devil. He said, the devil came to him and said, Martin Luther, you are a sinner. And he said, his response is, yes, you're right. And Christ came to die for sinners. That's powerful. And so our prayer, when we put on this armor, is to say, Father, today may I see myself the way you see me. May I see myself the way you see me. You see me 
through the blood of Jesus. Forgiven, redeemed, gifted righteousness. Number three, shoes of peace. What's the metaphor? Soldier shoes would be like cleats, studded boots uh, that would allow them to stand firm, to hold their ground, not be pushed back. He's saying peace is what you and I need to allow us to stand firm. That it is both peace with God and peace with others that prevents us from being tossed around in every different direction, pushed. Why do we need it? Because good Lord, we lack peace. We might need this more than anything else. We are filled with an unsettledness, anxiety, and full of worry. And that causes us to change our minds and to switch courses, to doubt ourselves and to doubt God. We live without peace. We experience the temptation of thinking that we need to acquire more, that someone else has more, and the reality that we are not enough. And that is crushing. And so he says then, our armor here, what we put on, is a readiness to face the world around us that only comes from the good news, the gospel of peace. That we, no matter what else is going on around us, have peace with God. It's good news. And we don't have to doubt our peace with God. We are in a right relationship with God. No animosity before God because of what Jesus did for us in our place. So think about this. Think about the inner turmoil that comes into your heart when you think that God is against you. Think about the doubt in your decision-making, where you are in life right now when you think God is against you. And then the very best you can, cast that out of your mind because it is simply not true for believers in Jesus. You have peace with God. Jesus gave it to you. And then we also, Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells us we can have peace from God. That God's presence in our lives brings peace. So we're not chasing or striving or reeling or grasping or needing. We can live at peace. So our prayer to put that on is just simply, Father, today, may I remember that I am at peace with you and I have peace from you. No matter how things fall apart, how sideways things get at work, how difficult my family relationships are right now, here's what I know. I know you're for me, and I know you're with me, and that brings me peace. Number four, he says a shield of faith. This metaphor obviously is about a shield. You guys seen a shield before? Good. They're big, and they protect you from stuff flying through the air or jabbed in your general direction. And here's what he says is that that is like faith. That faith or trust in the Lord is what protects us from offensive attacks of our enemies. Why do we need it? Let's switch the metaphor for a little bit. You, you remember the Robert Murray McShane quote? The seed of every sin on the man is in my heart. 
Well, if we change that idea from a seed to an ember, maybe you could get a picture of what's happening in this text. That the ember of every sin is in my heart. And so one of the ploys of the devil is to fan those embers into a flame by shooting all sorts of stuff your way. His goal is to ignite your sensuality or lust or greed or covetousness. Facebook is an aimed arrow at times directly at the ember of coveting in your heart. Be careful. I heard a story two weeks ago of a guy leading his brother to Christ over WhatsApp. So this is not like Brandon hates social media or it can't be useful, all right? But we have to deal with the reality that it is often used as a tool to fan into flame all sorts of desires inside of our hearts. And so what do we need to combat that? He says the shield of faith or what we need is trust in God. Trust that it is God that provides for us. Your paycheck is a good thing. Man, but it ultimately isn't what provides for you. God provides for you. And whatever stress you have at work, we can walk with the confidence, the trust that God's going to provide for us no matter what's next. And even more than that, we trust that God is our provision. That God provided perfectly for us to know him and be in relationship with him through his son, Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis again says this, we must pray for the gift of faith, for the power or the strength to go on believing, not in the teeth of reason, but in the teeth of lust. What did he just say? It is not academic attacks against your faith in Christ that are ultimately going to be your undoing. It is the fanning into flame lust that already exists inside of you that you need faith for. To be able to say, I don't need that thing. I don't need that experience. I don't need that acclaim from that person. Why? Because I am trusting God to provide. And so we pray, Father, today I trust you lead, you to lead me and to love me. Number five, helmet of salvation. Obviously, the helmet goes on to protect your brain, which is a good thing. I'm constantly telling my kids when they get on their bikes, put your helmet on. Why? Because you only get one brain, right? I know it doesn't look cool, but you're going to need that thing for the rest of your life. It protects what is vital to us. Football, I don't know if you guys ever played football, but let me tell you something. There's a big difference between trying to tackle a dude with a helmet off and trying to tackle a dude with a helmet on. With a helmet on, you feel pretty confident, ready to engage. The helmet off, a little nervous. And so when Paul talks about the helmet of salvation, he is pointing out that we are prone to doubt, to doubt our future and to doubt if we're enough. And this helmet comes with assurance that we can know that we are saved, that Christ does love us, that we are not going to be left alone, that our eternity is secure. 
Ken Hughes says, the helmet assures us that whatever happens, we will be saved and we can expect victory in Christ. It is a powerful ploy of our enemy to get you to doubt even your relationship with God. And so we go back to this over and over again and pray this prayer. Father, today, may I remember that I belong to you and that my future is in your hands. Number five is the sword of the spirit. This is our first offensive weapon. He tells us what it is. It's the word. He says the way that we beat back temptation, the way that we actively fight against it is by knowing the scripture. He says it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word. Now, here's what we believe here at Mercy Hill. That God's word was revealed to men by the Holy Spirit. And so it is a product of God's spirit speaking clearly to us. And we also believe this, that when we read it, God by his spirit illuminates it or shines a light on it or helps us understand it. So when we start with the scripture, what are we starting with? God's words through his spirit. And when we take it into our minds and into our hearts, what are we trusting in? That God's spirit's going to lead us to understand it. And he says, this is what you need to fight back all temptation, the scripture. This is what we see clearly in Matthew chapter four, right? The devil shows up to tempt Jesus. And in the interaction, how does Jesus push back against those temptations? With the scripture, the word. This puts them all together, right? When we are tempted to doubt the truth, what do we say? Psalm 119, 68. God, you are good and you do good. So I know, no matter what this looks like right now, that you are doing good towards me. When we are tempted to be full of self-righteousness, what do we have? Galatians chapter 2. We know a man's not justified by his works, but what? Justified through faith in Christ. We have Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, when we are tempted to doubt that we have peace, when we run to Philippians chapter 2, I mean chapter 4, and that the God of peace will guard our hearts and minds. In all of those temptations, we run back to God's word. Why? Because this is the way God has revealed his truth to us right here in the scripture. So we pray, Father, today, help me to respond to the temptations I face with your word. Here's the last question we haven't answered yet. How do I put it on? Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance by making supplication to all the saints. He says it also for me. Pray for me too. Here's what he's saying. I think sometimes we misunderstand this. This is why he switches from the metaphor here. He's telling you how to do it. How do you do it? How do you put on this armor? You wake up every morning with the confidence that trouble is ahead, knowing that you will face all sorts of subtle temptations aimed directly at your heart. 
And you start by praying what we just talked about. Father, today, help me see your word, your world truthfully. Father, today, may I see myself as you see me. Father, today, may I remember that I am at peace with you and I have peace from you. Father, today, I trust you to lead me and, lo- and I trust that you love me. Father, today, may I remember that I belong to you and my future is in your hands. Father, today, help me respond to temptations that I will face with your word. On. Put on. And then we remember that we belong to a community of faith. So you know what we do? We pray this for each other. That's what he says, making supplications for all the saints. So my D group right now, I know. I know my friend Michael's going to face temptation today. So what's my responsibility as a brother in Christ? To pray these things for him. Other elders at our church, I know what Mitchell is going to face this week. So what do we we do? We pray for that. Man, I know the folks in my MC are going to face this. So we pray this for ourselves and we pray this for each other. And then check this out. One last thing. What does he say? Pray for me. Specifically, he may be bold in sharing the gospel. Why? Because the temptation is the very thing that God has called him to is going to be the thing that the devil attacks. And Paul's like, man, God's called me to something. I need your help. Pray for me. You pray. I put on this armor too. And as one of the pastors here, let me just tell you, we covet your prayers. We would love for you to pray this for us. So this morning, then what do we need? For some of us, this is just a very simple wake-up call. I mean, you need help. You are outmatched. Just like I was outmatched my wrestling match with Dave Gibbs. And today is maybe a day where you take seriously praying through Ephesians chapter six. You go, I I do face temptation every day and it is subtle. It is not on the side of a monster energy drink can. It is in everyday experiences. Start to pray, God, could you help me navigate temptations? Could you lead me and guide me today? For some of us, perhaps what we need is to believe in Christ, to trust Jesus. That maybe while this was even being described for the first time ever in your life, you realize you have been pushed around for decades. That you have allowed this enemy to fan into full flame in your heart the things that were already there. And you are consumed by it and you don't know a way out. Today's the day. Because the way out for you is the way out for all of us. His name is Jesus. And he extinguishes those flames, forgives us of our past sins, gives us his own righteousness, puts us in right standing before God, places us at peace with God. And that can be yours today. The way that we acquire that, the Bible says, is through faith, just by trusting or believing in Jesus, trusting Jesus to save you. And maybe that's you today. And then maybe for some of us today, what we need is just the practice of this daily prayer. Write it down, take some notes. It'll be online, podcast it later, and to put into practice praying through these things. You don't need the cheesy like reenactment, you know what I mean? Putting on my helmet, getting my belt on. I mean, just get alone before the Lord. Father, today, could you 
Help me to see your world truthfully. Father, today, could you help me see myself as you see me? Father, today, could you help me remember that I'm at peace with you and I have peace from you? Father, today, could I trust you? Trust you to lead me and trust that you love me. Father, today, may I remember that I belong to you and my future is in your hands. Nobody else is your hands. And Father, today, help me respond to temptations by your word. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.